The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. In the beginning, Genesis 1, in the beginning, the Bible begins as a story with a once upon a time, with, a, with an in the beginning. And I've shared up here many, many times that I absolutely love stories. Even as a kid, I wanted to be a comic book artist when I grew up. It's not how it worked out, but that, you know, I still love stories, right? We all love stories. And, and what's more, more than just loving stories, we actually live by stories, as human beings, it's like this inescapable tendency that we have to be storied creatures. We all operate with some notion of the good guys and the bad guys, some notion of conflict and some hope of an ending, of resolution. The reality is every soul lives by some kind of overarching narrative, we might say, about the how and why of human history and our place within it. We all wrestle with these questions. What's the meaning of my life? What's the goal of human history? Why am I here instead of not here? Why is anything here instead of not here? Where am I going? What am I supposed to be doing with myself? And with, what am I supposed to do with my hands, right? <laughs> what do I live for from day to day? We all live by and tell ourselves some kind of story. The story of the modern world, the story that the modern world pitches to us is that, well, we, we all have our own stories. We have to live our own story. You've got to discover your story and live that particular story. We're suspicious of these big stories. We're cynical about the ability to actually say anything so comprehensive, and we're nervous about the certainty such, such big stories require of us. So the Western project is to live your own story. But in contrast to that, the Bible actually makes the comprehensive claim to be telling the story with a capital S. The story not just of Israel, not just the story of the church, not just the story of those who choose it, but the story of all peoples in all places across all nations and all times. And even more audacious than that, that Jesus of Nazareth is the center and goal of all of human history. The Bible tells us that it is telling the true story of the whole world. So regardless this morning, if you're here, regardless of whether or not you grew up around church, it's our assumption that you have bits and pieces of the Bible's story here and there that are stored away like puzzle pieces, and you have no idea how they all fit together. So to mix the metaphor, we've kind of been doing the story thing, to mix the metaphor a little bit to the puzzle thing, I'm going to show you a picture. This was a couple of weekends ago. So this is my four-year-old daughter, Ruthie, the cutest little thing in the world. And she, it was a Saturday morning, and she comes up to me and she says, Dad, can you help me do a puzzle? All right, Saturday morning, and what's coming, I mean, this is like maybe 11, 15 a.m. on Saturday. What's coming at noon on Saturday mornings this time of year? So I was like, all right, I'll do this. I'm, I'm happy to do this for a little while. It's a kid's puzzle. Surely, it's going to be one of those like Mickey Mouse, 10 minutes. We're just going to crank that puzzle out. No big deal. I sit down with Ruthie, and I see that she's poured out multiple Ziploc bags of different puzzles on the table. I'm like, all right, I'm committed to this thing now. What's more, they're stored in Ziploc bags. There's no box that, that is, I can find anywhere that has any reference for what this puzzle is supposed to look like. And as I'm putting it together, it's like, I think this is Minnie Mouse. I think maybe this is Mickey Mouse. And I'm beginning to stress about my ability to actually complete this puzzle. My wife walks in and I'm like, Emily, Ruthie has dumped out two puzzles and I can't figure out how to put these things together. They're all mixed up. And she says, actually, it's four puzzles. And so <laughs> we didn't finish the puzzle that day. We ended up just putting them back in the Ziploc bags and doing a different activity. Now, my assumption is, 
is that for many of us, we have these puzzle pieces of the Bible story, but we don't have quite kind of like the picture of the box. We're not entirely certain how these puzzle pieces fit together. We remember Prince of Egypt. We love the soundtrack. We remember loving that movie as a kid. Somebody says, where is that in the scriptures? You're like, I don't know, but I think it's a Bible story, right? We, we know about Noah, and we remember the felt boards from our childhood, or we remember our grandma talking about figures like Elijah and Elisha. But again, we have no idea how these characters fit into the bigger story that the Bible has to tell us, much less what it has to do with Jesus, much less what all of that has to do with me. So our goal for the next 12 Sundays is we want to grapple with the Bible's story. We want to put the puzzle pieces together as a church family. We want to learn what the Bible is saying about our origins and our destiny and the purpose of our lives and hopefully, hopefully get some coherence as we do it. This morning, for our non-Christian friends, you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a believer in Jesus, we would just invite you to think about this story, to be challenged by it. Even if you don't believe it, at least know what it is that you don't believe. Let's give ourselves over to the true story of the whole world and see what the Lord Jesus does with that. Now, let me say this, and this is honestly a challenge for me. I was joking with John Cheek this morning. My manuscript is usually about 11 pages. We're at 15 pages this morning, just so you guys know, all right? So John said, I'm going to be here as long as you keep us. I hope the rest of you feel that way. Now, it is a challenge to want to say all the things all the time when you go to any sort of passage of Scripture. We're going to be walking through the high points of the Bible in 12 Sundays. So this is the abridged story, right? And I feel certain that for some of you, some of you Bible nerds, there is some thing that you are burning up about that we are not going to address. And I'm just going to rip that band-aid off and apologize for that right now. This is the abridged version. There's a thousand pages in this Bible and we're hitting it in 12 Sundays. So we're just going to, we're going to roll with it, right, as a church family. What we're going to find are the most important motifs and patterns and melodies and follow those over the course of of the next 12 weeks. So where do we begin? How does the Bible begin? The Bible begins in a garden, and more specifically, at a garden wedding. Genesis 1-1, let's read again. I mean Bible nerd with the most affection that I can muster, just so you know. It's a good, there's worse things to be nerds about, okay? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Bible begins as a story. Now, the Bible is a story told over a collection of 66 books across 1,500 years in three different languages. The biggest part is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the, the last part, what we call the New Testament, is written in Greek. The first part is written in Hebrew. The Bible is full of diverse genres. You have letters, and you have poetry, and you have narrative, and you have prophecy, and it tells a story progressively. Good stories are told that way, right? You don't give all of the details up front. You slowly unfold the details and the plot as it goes along. That means that the Bible is not a list of rules, though it has rules. The Bible is not a textbook or a list of doctrines, though it has lists of doctrines. It's not a book of heroes whose example we should follow or villains not to follow, though it has both heroes and villains. It's not a book of moral lessons or fables like Aesop's teaching, though it has those. The Bible is a story with the beginning. Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God. Genesis 1 begins and it just says, in the beginning, God. Now, what do you make of that? The fact that the Bible just starts there. It just starts with God creating. God just is, ising. 
And that's where we pick up the story. God is just existing. Now, I read recently a book by a guy named Gavin Ortland, and one of the things he talks about in that book is that for many folks, uh, one defeater belief in regards to belief in God is the question of ultimately, like, who, who caused God? The Bible just assumes that God is there and that God precedes all of human history, but who caused God? Where did God come from? How does the Bible just assume that in the beginning, God is there? Now, the ancient Greek philosophers, guys like Plato and Aristotle and those dudes, they spoke of the need for some kind of uncaused cause, an unmoved mover that sits behind everything. What they'd say is that there can't be an infinite regress of causes, that there has to be something that started everything, right? Think about playing pool. Those balls aren't moving on their own accord. Some initial stick has to hit the white ball, which goes to the purple ball, which goes to the green ball, right? There's got to be some kind of cause behind all of this. But what they recognize is that you can't do that forever. You can't go backwards and backwards and backwards and backwards and not find any sort of unmoved mover. There has to be some starting point. And so what Christian thinkers and what the Bible tells us is that there's, there's different sort of types of beings. There's those beings whose existence is dependent on things outside of itself, and then there's some beings whose existence isn't dependent on things outside of itself. The language that theologians have used is that there are necessary beings and there are contingent beings. All right, so when you think about a bird, for instance, is a bird a necessary being or a contingent being? Well, birds need worms and other things, presumably, Water, I guess, birds need those things, and so they are contingent beings. Mountains, what do mountains need? They need tectonic plates to collide and form into a mountain. So a tectonic plate, or a mountain rather, is a contingent being. So there's things that are reliant on things outside of themselves, like us. We need food, and we need water, and we need air, and we need shelter. Hierarchy of needs, Abraham Maslow, right? We're contingent beings, but God is a necessary being. In fact, Christian theologians say that God is, by definition, a necessary being. The one necessary being, in fact. God just is. And by definition, that's what makes God, God. He just is. He is eternally ising. We'll see in a few weeks that God gives Moses his personal name in Exodus 3. And what does he tell Moses his name is? I am. God is the eternal present, with a capital E and a capital P. We are contingent beings. We need a cause, but God, by definition, as a necessary being, doesn't. And so God is the unmoved mover, the author who precedes the story and succeeds the story, you might say, in every way. The story is completely hemmed in by God. So the story begins with a God who is just there. And the God who is just there makes. Genesis 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Chapter 1 is the story of creation organized along seven days, each day filled with some kind of creating activity. And each day is punctuated with a consistent refrain, where God looks at what he's made, and what does he say? It's good. Day one, light is created in verses 3 through 5. Day two, the heavens are created in verses 6 through 8. Day three, land and plants in verses 9 through 13. Day four, you have the sun, the moon, and the stars, verses 14 through 19. Day five, you have the birds and sea creatures, verses 20 through 23. Day six, you have land, animals, and humanity, verses 24 through 31. And then day seven, God rests, chapter two, verses one through three. The God who is there just makes. And there's a couple of noteworthy things about this chapter. The first noteworthy thing is this, that God creates 
everything. Now, if you read through Genesis 1, are you going to read things like supernovas and amoebas and tardigrades and um, the Loch Ness Monster? Are you, are you going to read those things in Genesis 1? Well, of course not. You're not going to read those things. But Genesis is obviously making the case that God is behind all the things. Though it doesn't list everything, it's obvious that everything, that the author is telling us that everything comes from God. And it doesn't tell us how he makes other than that God speaks. Is that instantaneous? Is that over long periods of time? And there's lots of debate from good Christians and they disagree on the specifics. But the essential thing is this. God makes everything that isn't God. God makes everything that isn't God. And unlike the gods of the nations, there is one God who's behind all of it. There's no God of the sun. There's no God of the sea. There's no, there's no God behind this or that. It's one God who exists behind all things. And that one God created everything. The second noteworthy thing about this chapter is that God calls everything he makes good. In fact, 131, he finishes his creating work and he calls it very good. God makes a good world, a good physical world. And this is actually one of those places where this story diverges from other stories. A good world from the hand of a good God is very different than a story that tells us that we emerged from the void. That all that exists is accidental collisions. And that all we are is firing neurons and chemical reactions. According to this story, a good God created a good world. And that's fundamentally different than a worldview or a story that tells us that these things happened by accident. And it's also very different than pagan stories that tell us that the spiritual world is the good and the physical world is the bad. Actually, the Bible tells us that mountains and trees and birds of the air, all of these things are good, and they come from the hand of a good God. We'll revisit this in just a second. The third thing to really pay attention to in these chapters is that there is a pattern in all of these days. Think again. God's creation has a kind of correspondingness to it with pieces that are distinct but all have a sort of sameness. They fit together. Author Andrew Wilson describes it this way. I have this quote on the screen. He says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Watch this. And God separated light from darkness, the day from night, the waters above from the waters beneath, the sea from the land, He distinguished between the sun and the moon, fish and birds, livestock and creeping things and wild animals. God's work of creation is, among other things, a series of distinctions that bring order to what is formless, the Hebrew word tohu, and to what is empty, the Hebrew word bohu. Look at this. He says there is a fit, a mutual enhancement, a beautiful difference at the heart of what God has made. There's a pattern of difference, yet sameness. These things are different, but they have a sort of interlocking nature to them. And in Genesis 1, there's a complementarity that's intended to clue us into God's purposes for everything. In 124, this complementarity work, creation sort of comes to a head. And God says, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to their kind. He makes livestock and the beasts of the field. It's good. And then verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God makes all things. He makes distinctions. He makes these complementary pairs. And then he makes people. 
He makes man, and it's unlike anything else that God creates. What's the thing that distinguishes man from all other creatures? Well, it tells us, verse 26 and 27, man is created in God's image. God created man in his own image. Again, verse 27, in the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. And maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've heard the idea that man is created in God's image and that there's a, a fundamental distinction between the human race and between everything else. And I would just ask you, what does that mean? What does it mean that we're created in the image of God? Does it mean that God has facial features like us? Does it mean uh, we, God, uh, we have rational minds like God? I mean, what is it that distinguishes us from the rest of creation? Well, verse 28 actually tells us. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God has called humanity to have dominion over his good world. And corresponding to that is the, the rational mental capacity to do so. We're to have dominion over God's good world. Now, a few years ago, um, my parents were moving out of our childhood home. Um, I grew up in Simpsonville. My parents built a house in 1991. They moved out of it in 2020. Um, and as you can imagine, a lot of things accumulated in the attic of that space over the course of those 30 years or so. Uh, and my mom, as they were moving, doing the thing when your parents move and they call you and say, we got a box full of your stuff. Do you want to come get it? It's going to Goodwill or you're going to take it? Well, <clears throat> I was given old Ninja Turtles. I was given old football jerseys. I was given all sorts of stuff. And then I was given a box uh, this treasured box that my mom had written in fancy uh, calligraphy, my name, and my brother had one, and my sister had one, and this box was full, like full to the brim. It wasn't full of trophies. It wasn't full of blue ribbons from field day. It wasn't full of good grades. You know what it was full of? Crafts. Santa's made out of popsicle sticks and drawings of dinosaurs by a four-year-old. It was full of that sort of thing. And I was astounded that my mom had held on to, for years, huge boxes of all of the crafts that we brought home from Sunday school, that we brought home from, from, from school and whatever else. And it was like, that is the most mom thing that I can conceive of, that she keeps all of that stuff. And, and as, as I was thinking about this passage and thinking about dominion and being created in the image of God, what's one of the things that distinguishes us from everything else? Is we have this impulse as a race to make all of us. I mean, inescapably, you give a child crayons and he's living his best life. We inescapably are creatures that are born to make. And we understand that God has wired us in such a way that we want to take his good world and do something with it. We want to draw dinosaurs. We want to make. Humanity was built to rule over God's good world on God's behalf. To make and to build and create and draw out the goodness of God's world. Think about it. Somehow along the way, we figured out that you could take beehives and turn it into candles and light our homes with it. We figured out that you could take dirt and rocks and build cathedrals and spaceships out of them. We figured out that you can turn toilet paper tubes into binoculars and put string to it and wear it around the house, which is what my children like to do. This is the special status of mankind. Give it a responsibility to rule over God's good world. And with that, a corresponding dignity that belongs to nothing else in all of creation. Friends, you, we are kings and queens of God's good world. And that is what he made us to be. Then we go to chapter 2. Chapter 2 will start in verse 5. It kind of hover zooms over some of the details about what it means to be human. Chapter 2, verse 5. 
When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plants of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So chapter 2 sort of zooms in on day 6, and what, is it, what does it show us? That there's no bush of the field just yet. And the reason is, as well, there's no man to yet work the ground. So what does God do? He gathers up the dust from the ground and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And the result is that the man Adam, which comes from the word Adam, which means man, is gathered up out of the Adamah, out of the earth, out of the ground. And I was joking with my family that Adam is literally named Dusty. That's how the Hebrew reads. Adam, Adam is taken from Adamah. Dusty, the man is taken from the ground, for the ground, for dominion over God's good world. And then God puts him in a garden, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now notice God's activity in these verses. God gives Adam a unique status and he puts him in the garden. You know, don't think dad's uh, jalapeno garden in the backyard. Think like Victorian England garden, like a, a kind of a beautiful estate garden. The, the, the word Eden is the Hebrew word for delight. Like this is a garden paradise, a garden of delight. God puts Adam in the garden and this is important. God gives Adam both responsibilities and boundaries. Verse 9. God allows Adam to eat freely, generously of every tree, except for the one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to hit on this a little bit more next week, but it's worth emphasizing that we have a tendency to fixate on the tree and wonder why it is that God gave them this one rule. Like, why did God restrict access to this one tree? And again, we'll talk more about this next week, but what it at least means is that whatever authority and dignity that God has given to mankind, it's derived there's a command, don't eat from this tree. So there's, there's limits that God places on the rule, the, the kingliness and the queenliness of his creatures. This kingly calling is limited. It's a kind of sub-creating. J.R.R. Tolkien called it a vice regency. We rule and we work the land on behalf of God, for God, and to God. So God puts Adam in the garden, and then what does God do? The Lord gives the man a wife. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave name to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So like Adam, the animals are gathered up out of the dust from the ground with one distinction— they're not breathed into in the way that God breathed into man. The man has a, there's an infusion of a special kind of life that God gives to man. And then notice the pattern of God making and making it good all over chapter 1. But what does God see in verse 18? It's not good that man should be alone. So God responds by providing for Adam. Man is giving names. He's speaking over the animals. He's naming them. He's exercising his dominion. And in the process of doing so, what does Adam realize? That correspondingness at play everywhere else, well, it's not here. Where's the one for me, Adam says. 
Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God puts Adam to sleep, and from Adam's side, God brings forth the first woman. And I love this. Adam wakes up with poetry on his lips. The first words that we hear humans speaking in the Bible is a love song, where Adam says, finally, at last, enough of these elephants and enough of these lions. I need one for me, and finally, at last, I have one. God has provided a wife to me. Notice again the complementarity here. That humans are made male and female. There's sameness and distinction. And it's written all over Genesis 1. In fact, we would say it's written into reality itself. And the pinnacle of God's creating work is the bringing together of man and woman. What do we make of the fact that the story begins this way? I just love this. I mean, I think it's incredible that the true story of the whole world begins with a garden wedding. I think this tells us something about God's purposes for his world, doesn't it? There's a correspondingness. There's heaven and earth. There's land and sky. There's fish of the sea. There's birds of the sky. There's man and woman. And later on in the Bible, in the New Testament, in a letter to Christians in the city of Ephesus, the Apostle Paul tells us that marriage is actually a kind of parable. It is a picture of God's plan for the whole thing. When he tells us in Hebrews chapter 5 that like husband and wife, we are to see the union of Christ and his church, God and his creation. And so the plot thread that I think is established here in the opening chapters for us that we're going to see cashed out and expanded and explored in more detail as the Bible goes on is this. God intends to be present with his people and his place. God intends to be present with his people in his place. Maybe at this point, as you're thinking about the creation of all things, you wonder, what motivated God to create? I mean, why did God create all of the things that he made? Was he bored? Was he lonely? Did he need affirmation? I heard someone say one time, was he longing for the, 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 the little pitter-patter of little feet through the heavenly mansion hallways? Now, the reason that God created is from goodness pouring forth, he wanted to show his glory and create a people to receive and enjoy and explore that glory forever, like the union of a husband and wife. The same author that I quoted before in the same article, I'm going to pick up where he left off from Andrew Wilson. He says, there's a fit, a mutual enhancement, a beautiful difference at the heart of what God has made. The cosmos is made up of all kinds of complementary pairs, with male and female serving as a paradigmatic example. The Bible's vision of sexual complementarity as such reflects our vision of cosmological complementarity, and look at this, and ultimately behind it, the beautiful difference of creator and creation, God and Israel, Christ and church, lamb and bride. The plot thread established here is that God intends to be present with his people and his place. A garden wedding is a key to the whole story. That's what God desires to do with everything. 
God created the world to be a place where we enjoy the goodness of God's world, yes, but where we enjoy God himself. Eden means delight. It's interesting to think about how the task that's given to Adam in verse, chapter 2, verse 15, these two verbs, to keep and work the garden, are later used to describe the work of priests in the temple. Not only that, but when you get to the temple passages later on in the Old Testament, they continually evoke imagery from the Garden of Eden. And what is the temple? What, what are temples in the Bible's storyline? It's the place where God dwells with his people. God's intention for Adam and Eve is to guard and keep his garden and ultimately expand the boundaries of that garden so that God's presence and God's people would cover the face of the earth. But God's heartbeat for us as human beings is to be united with us for eternity. Now, of course, the story is going to progress. These themes are going to be opened up and drawn out. And like any good story, things get complicated. And it doesn't take very long for things to get complicated. We'll see next week. And of course, I can't give away the whole thing in chapter one, right? But this is what, this is what God is up to, that God is creating us for himself. Now, a few words just directly to us about how this story intersects with you right here, right now. First thing is this. Friend, listen to me. You are made in the image of God. You are. Not humanity in general, not just the impressive people, but you. And I'm even going to say this, and I know this gets hated on. You are a beautiful and unique snowflake. You are. By God's design, There is nothing else like you in all of creation. I was teaching a group of grade school boys a couple of summers ago, and I put up a bunch of pictures of really violent, bloody animals. It was like a shark that had just mauled something, and it was a lion that had just mauled something, and a bear that had just mauled something. And I was like, what what do all of these creatures have in common? And the boys were like, "They're, they're vicious, and they're nasty, and they could kill us. And I was like, that's true, but you know what else? None of them are you. Not one of them. Not one of them holds a candle to what you are by virtue of being made in God's image. You are incredibly impressive. You are a miracle. And you exist by God's good purposes. And now, this doesn't in any any way conflict with our need for redemption as the story reveals to us later on. But it does mean that you bear God's image. You do, right where you are. Again, this doesn't conflict with your need to be saved and redeemed. But you have been made by God and for God, and listen to me, in a way, like God. This is how Psalm 8 says it, starting verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Look at this. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You've been crowned with glory and honor by virtue of being made in God's image. And you want to know how the Christian story has changed the world? Look no further than this. This teaching about the image of God absolutely revolutionized the world. The modern world as we know it is in the shadow of these scriptures. The Christian story. Nowhere else will you find this truth that we've been made in God's image. And that the pre-born, the young, the old, the black, the white, the Hispanic, the Asian, the mentally disabled, the rich, the poor. That all of us are built to rule with, like, and for God. Isn't that incredible? Friend, you are made in the image of God. You are. 
Here's the second way that this story intersects with your story. Your life and work are good. Your life and your work are good. I wonder how many of us came here this morning feeling completely like the the feather at the beginning of Forrest Gump, right? Just kind of floating along. No direction, feel completely meaningless. On the verge of despair over boredom and a sense of emptiness about our lives. A few weeks back, I saw a tweet that probably expresses a common sentiment. This person tweeted this. They said, kind of thinking existentially for a moment, they said, so we just supposed to eat, sleep, exercise, go to college, work nine to five every day, travel two weeks out of the year, buy a house, have kids, and die? That's the whole thing? And I would imagine on, on one level, there's, there's probably something about us that resonates with that. You mean that's kind of the whole picture? And is that it? I mean, is, is life just that? Is life just drudgery to be endured? I mean, how hopeless and dreadful is this way of viewing the world? I mean, if there's no supernatural, no God who precedes us in every way, if this is all just chemicals and electricity, well, that is kind of a letdown. But what if we framed this tweet in light of the Bible's portrayal of things? So we're just supposed to eat, sleep, go to college, work nine to five every day, travel two weeks out of the year, buy a house, have kids, and die? You mean, we're just supposed to eat banana pudding? We're just supposed to combine nutmeg and cinnamon and pumpkin with flour, eggs, sugar, and chocolate chip and cook it at like 350 degrees for 20 minutes and put butter on it and enjoy it. We're just supposed to eat that? We're just supposed to rub paprika and brown sugar and cayenne pepper on a Boston butt and smoke it around 200 degrees for several hours and enjoy pulled pork with mustard-based barbecue sauce? You mean we're just supposed to eat? Is that all? You mean we're just supposed to exercise? We're just supposed to push our bodies to the limit and experience the deep satisfaction of doing something difficult and achieving what we previously thought impossible? We're just supposed to go to school? We're just supposed to consider the infinite and varied complexities of math and science? We're just supposed to align our minds with an external reality that's there regardless of whether or not we think it? That math exists independent from the physical world, yet we still have the capacity to apprehend it? You mean we're just supposed to wrestle with the big ideas alongside the biggest minds the world has ever seen? We're just supposed to work? Just create things from disparate parts and bring to order a chaotic world, thereby imaging the creator? We're just supposed to travel and see things like the expanse of the American West with exploding gas billions of miles away that we call stars? We're just supposed to play on the beach, the tip of the Atlantic's tongue, the home of limitless numbers and varieties of animal life yet undiscovered? We're just supposed to buy a house, a place to beautify and fill with life and warmth, just some place to celebrate Christmases and Thanksgivings and create memories with the people we love for the few short years we have with them this side of eternity. We're just supposed to have kids, just welcome little image bearers into our home, either biologically or through adoption. We're just supposed to raise up these little miracles, become acquainted with the joys and travails of parenthood, and one day be given grandkids. We're just supposed to look in their eyes and realize that there is more depth and complexity behind them than any other creature on the face of the earth. You mean that's it and then we just die? Friends, God's world is beautiful and full of glories to be discovered and enjoyed. Your life, yes, your life is good and worth living. At least that's what the Christian story would have you believe. And here's the most essential thing for us, friend. The last way I think this story intersects with ours. You are made for God. 
That is the beating heart of the Bible storyline. Is that God is making a people for himself. Like Eve for Adam, you are made for God, friend. To be sung over and cherished and loved with a steadfast, everlasting love. You were made for him. You were made in his image to rule like him and for him and with him. You were to create and work and live like and invent and paint and plant and establish and grow with like and for God. And we can do all of that but still find ourselves with a gaping hole. Because as one Christian thinker said so long ago, that our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. God intends to have a people for himself. Listen to me. God intends to have you for himself. I just wonder what you think of that this morning. What is your notion of God that you brought in this morning? Is he cold? Is he angry? Is he distant? Or is he the God of the garden wedding? Creative and merciful, making us for himself. And of course, we can't read these stories without the awareness of what's happened since then. Right, the harmonious garden paradise that's shown here is not the case anymore. Things have changed. We'll see this next week. The shadow of our experience in the world hangs over this chapter of the story. Of course, of course it does. And so the story anticipates the arrival of a man. Not just a man, but the man. A real king. A real image bearer. Who could do dominion and who could live well. Who could live perfectly, we might say. Who could image God flawlessly who could lead us and embody a new kind of humanity. And this story anticipates another garden wedding, but somehow it's even better, with another groom and another bride and another marriage, and this time there's a feast. But we'll get there. We won't go there quite yet. And so this morning, what I would have you to do is just pause and reflect on what the, what the, the, the beginning of the story has to say to us. The God of the garden wedding How does that turn your notions of who he is on its head? And what does it mean that God has made you for himself? This morning, if you want to understand more of what that means, I'm going to be available in the lobby to talk. I'd love to grab coffee. I'd love to grab lunch with you. Um, I'm sure the person who invited you or brought you this morning would also happily talk more about what these things mean. But I would encourage you to think about what it means that you are made for God. And Christian, this morning... Could you be reacquainted with the beauty of this story? That the thing started in a garden wedding and it ends in a wedding. That God made you for himself. Maybe for you, Christian faithfulness feels like a slog right now. And listen, sometimes Christian faithfulness is a slog. But how does it reinvigorate us to know that this God who's behind our faith is the God of the garden wedding, is the God who creates us for himself so that we could see and know and enjoy him forever, like husband and wife. To me, that has a way of reinvigorating my faithfulness. And I would encourage you to think about what that means for you as well. These next few moments, we always take time to just pause and pray. Because sometimes, after listening to someone talk, we need just some space to process and think. We're going to take a couple of minutes to just pause and reflect. And I would just encourage you to pray along those lines. Ask God to to renew the joy of your salvation within you. And ask God to show himself to be the God of the garden wedding and to, to feel that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Lord God, we come to you and we pray to you because you first came to us. It is all grace. It is by your initiative that we are here this morning, that we even exist. And so God, we acknowledge our indebtedness to you in every way. And God, we, we thank you that you have seen fit to redeem us in spite of our sin, in spite of the fact that we rejected this, that sin and our rebellion has not thwarted your purposes for us. God, this morning I pray for any of our friends who are here who have not yet believed. God, would you, would you stir them with the image of, of this incredible story of creation and the richness of the world that you have placed us within? And then for those of us who have, who have been walking faithfully, and again, who, who might find ourselves in a slog, slog God, would you, would you renew us? Would you restore us? And would you elevate our eyes for just a moment to see the truth of the story that we are finding ourselves within. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us in these next few minutes? Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.